Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. Light episode today, a little bit of a longer one. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being put out there for consumption by Christians it's not biblical. It's not what God's Word says. It's not what Christians have believed, taught, and confessed through the millennia. It's just made-up stuff designed to draw large crowds, scratch itching ears, and basically line the pockets of the people teaching this nonsense with lots of money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's weird how that works. And uh, so part of the way in which you learn discernment is by doing the comparing and contrasting. So you'll note there's a, a program in extremes, <laughs> if you would. You listen to the bad, you hear what God's Word says, and then we go to the opposite end and try to give you an example of what it sounds like when a pastor is actually trying to work through a text or a concept or things like that. We've been working our way uh, through the book of Exodus, and uh, we are up to the commandment that says, you shall not steal, you shall not steal. And uh, we're going to listen to two lessons. One lesson, uh, it's a little shorter, so it'll be uh, it'll, that'll be the first part of the program. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll listen to the second lesson. Both of them dealing with the commandment about stealing. You shall not steal. Let's tune in. Here we go. Seventh commandment. <clears throat> seventh commandment is what we're going to be looking at today. And the seventh commandment is a lot like the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment is you shall not murder. Fifth commandment is you shall not murder. And remember when we looked at the fifth commandment, the overriding question was the question that Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to the question is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. So fifth commandment has to do with care for our neighbor regarding his 
physical body, seventh commandment has to do with the needs necessary for our neighbor and ourselves to maintain our physical bodies. That's the idea. And so the seventh commandment reads, you shall not steal. And I like Martin Luther's summary of this commandment. When he asks, what does this mean? He says, this means that we should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way. But, listen to this, help him. Help your neighbor to improve and protect his possessions and income. Wow. Now, he's sitting there going, that's a tall order. You want me to help and protect, me to protect my neighbor and his possession and his incomes? Wow. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. We're going to steer into the political for just a minute. There is a way in which we are all keeping this commandment to a degree, and that is by paying our taxes. Let me explain. Our society is set up in such a way that we work from the idea that we have a distribution of tasks. I'm a pastor. Roger's a farmer. Don does mysterious things with agricultural things around the world, right? But I know that it's an important thing. So we've, dis- we've distributed among our society different tasks that we all specialize in. Some of you are teachers. Some of you will do other things. Like You get the idea. So that being the case, I am not trained as a police officer. I'm not. So me strapping on a gun and going and buying one of those little nickel stars isn't going to help in protecting our neighbor. However, paying my taxes so that Grand Forks County or Polk County can pay law enforcement officials who are tasked with the job of patrolling our streets, arresting the riffraff, punishing those who are doing evil, right? So paying our taxes is one of the ways in which we are keeping this commandment. And I have to talk about this because I run into this from time to time in the church. This requires us to have a conversation with that fellow. Have you ever met this fellow? I've met him in other churches. Thankfully, I haven't met him at Kongsvinger. And this is the fellow who has this, well, he says he has this great love for God, that he has a very tight relationship with Jesus, that his devotional time is very serious and all this type of stuff. And he believes that he is doing a good work by stiffing it to the U.S. government and not paying his taxes. And he's trying to convince you that that is a good work as well. Have you met this fellow? You are blessed. Believe me when I tell you, in evangelicalism, there's like a little clutch of these guys. And they're, in a, they're like in every church. And they think it is their patriotic and Christian duty to not pay their taxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So let me just say this, because, and I have to say it because I know that there are people who listen to our Sunday schools who are not here. If this is you, you've got to repent. If this is you, you've got to repent. There is nothing holy about not paying your taxes. You are literally breaking an explicit command of God given in Romans 13 to the New Testament believers that they are to pay their taxes. Now, if that means filing your tax returns and figuring out how much you owe and figuring out some kind of a payment plan, get on it. But if you think that somehow you're doing a good work by not paying your taxes, I would say you're breaking the fourth commandment, which says to honor your father and mother, and you are breaking the seventh commandment because you are stealing from all of us the resources that we need to make it so that not only are our possessions not stolen, 
so that we can protect each other from having their possessions stolen. Straight up. And this is, by the way, this is not socialism. This is actually what the government set up to do. Now, we talk about health care and other things like that in another conversation. But the idea then is this. Pay your taxes. So here it is. It's now February. You should have all received from your employer and all the people who pay you. You should have received those little tax slips. And some of you know that you're going to get a tax return, so you're right on it. You're going to go file your taxes. Some of you, though, some of you, though, you're going to file your taxes, and there's going to be a check that you write at the end. So if you write a check at the end of it, say to the Lord, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to keep the seventh commandment. And I ask that you would use this tax money to protect the people of our community. Now, you smile because it sounds silly, but that's what Scripture teaches. Paying your taxes is an opportunity to collectively protect ourselves and our neighbors. And that goes all the way up to the military, to the state troopers that patrol the highways, to our local law enforcement. You think about the military, their job is to protect us from ISIS and whatever weird, crazy things going to come up next. And if it weren't for them, where would we all be? Remember, God has sanctioned the government for the purpose of punishing the evildoer, and armies, are, when they're used rightly, protect you by destroying and killing other people so that you're not being killed. Such is the nature of the world we live in. All of that being said, then, the idea, the central thought in this commandment is that God has created us, listen again, to look after each other, to look after the earthly gifts that he has given to our neighbors, not just ourselves, for their life and for their well-being. I spent a lot of time sleeping this week, much against my will, but when I was having moments of lucidity where I was somewhat awake and partially asleep, one of the things I like to do is just look at Facebook and see what people are posting. Have any, any of you do this? It's crazy what people post on Facebook. But somebody posted a funny video. They thought it was really funny. It was a by, by a fellow by the name of Tom Maid. And you could probably find this video somewhere. And what he had done is he had taken his brand new iPhone 7 or 8 and he took the electronics out of it and wired it up so that it worked off a remote control. That, and when he pressed the button, it would shock the person who was holding it. Now, just work with me here. Work with me here. So then what he did is he had a friend of his with a hidden camera filming this. And he went to a public place. He would go to like a place where there was a park and there was a park bench. And he sat down and he put his phone next to him and then pretended like he had passed out. Maybe he had had too much to drink the night before. So he's, you know, sawing logs. And no joke. While he's sleeping on a public park bench, they have video footage of person after person after person sneaking up and trying to take his phone. And they would get no more than you know, 15, 20 yards away when he'd pull out his remote, hit the button, and they'd go, wah, like this. And everyone would laugh and think that's the funniest thing ever. I was thinking, that is such an indictment of humanity. That is a flagrant breaking of God's command. And everybody knows that stealing is a sin. Everybody knows this. It's against the law in every single country on planet Earth. Even the hardened atheist would say, if you say, well, what's, what's right and what's wrong? They would say, well, whatever is wrong is the thing that does that hurts somebody else. Taking somebody else's stuff hurts them. And yet, you and I both, we all know it. You go out in public, and if you're not careful with your stuff, 
Your purse is out a little too far. Something like, it's going to get snatched. How much crime happens at the mall? A lot, yeah? I, when I worked at Walmart years and years and years and years ago, we had a guy who was our secret shopper. This guy's favorite thing was to do was lift weights and tackle shoplifters. There were several instances where, it's no joke, it's like, you know, I'd be walking into work, and I'd look, and there he was. He'd have some guy in some, you know, chokehold on the ground saying, you're not going anywhere, cops are on the way, you know. <laughs> and then the story came out. Did you hear about this in California? In California, Walmart is being sued. They're being sued in California because certain products that are, that are predominantly used by African-American women for hair care are being stolen at an alarming rate. So Walmart's solution, lock up those products and require these women to actually ask for them so that they can't steal them. They're being sued and accused of racism for locking up those products. And it's Gloria Allred who's representing them. Of course. Yeah, of course. But such is the state of the world that we live in. I had a friend of mine when I was in high school. He would tell me straight up, it's not a sin to steal using the five-finger discount unless you get caught. That was his argument. No joke. To which I told him at the time, you're going to hell. So <laughs> this is not how Christians behave. So we understand then that God in this commandment has not only told us that we are not to not take people's stuff, we're not to take their stuff, but we're to protect them and help them to keep their possessions. I would have you consider the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus. And this is a great story because this is a story of Christ calling somebody, forgiving them, and then they immediately bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Immediately. And so we see this in this fellow's life. And here's what the text says. Jesus entered Jericho, Luke 19. He was passing through... And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just the tax collector. He was a chief. He was a head guy in town. He's the one who owned the franchise. And the tax collectors in Jesus' day in Judea were swindlers. Absolute swindlers. And keep this in mind. Things were so bad in first century Judea that there was no middle class. The middle class did not exist. You were either wealthy or you were poor. There was no middle ground. And so Zacchaeus had ingratiated himself as the chief tax collector and made himself rich on the backs of people who were languishing in very difficult poverty. Keep that in mind. He was a chief tax collector. He was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Hence the song. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but in the ancient world, you could see this as like a nuclear bomb going off. To have a meal with somebody in an honor culture such as this is to basically honor that person. Jesus is literally giving Zacchaeus a place of honor and saying, I'm going to eat at your house today. I want to eat with you, which is unheard of. You don't eat with somebody who is a nefarious charlatan criminal who's living like a parasite off of everybody else. The fact that Jesus would eat with him 
just sent everybody into a complete tailspin, and we see it. So he says, Zacchaeus hurried down, and he, and he received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Which is a silly statement, because I don't think anybody in Jericho at the time, and even to this present day, could have invited Jesus to their home who wasn't a sinner. So this tells you a little bit about their understanding of sin, which is, is off to say the least. But Zacchaeus, now notice this. When Jesus calls him, he honors him. And this is a man who now demonstrates that Christ has miraculously worked repentance in him. And you can see it in his actions. So Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So he's literally going, he's going to go to his bank account, take that thing 50%, whatever that is, that's all now going to be redistributed to the poor. That's huge. That is ginormous. And he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So you can see in the story of faith, forgiveness, and repentance that the first breaths of Zacchaeus's faith. And this is kind of an important thing. Have you noticed in Scripture, especially in the Gospels, in the Gospels, some people are nameless, some people have names. Have you ever noticed that? The ancient church actually gave us an explanation as to why that phenomenon is. For instance, who is the name of the fellow who when Jesus was carrying his cross and he stumbled and fell Who picked it up and carried it for him? Say it. Simon. Yes, his name is Simon. Simon the what? The Cyrene. Simon the Cyrene. How do you know his name? I mean, because this is the guy who was just randomly picked out of the crowd. There's Jesus on his way to the cross, on his way to being crucified. Jesus stumbles. The Roman soldier says, you pick it up, and he has to carry it. How is it that we know this guy's name? Yeah, but there's, there's a whole lot of people. There's a woman who has her, her, her son is raised from the dead. We don't know her name. We don't know his name. How do we know these people's names? How? How would Luke know Zacchaeus? <laughs> Survey says... Eh. Okay. That's a good that's a good try. How would they how would Luke know his name? Okay, here's what the early church said. The reason we know the name of Simon of Cyrene, the reason why we know the names of certain people in the gospels is because they kept going to church. Uh-huh. So Luke knows Zacchaeus' name and who Zacchaeus is because Zacchaeus, from this moment forward, is a believer in Christ. And he continues going to church after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. That's the reason why we know his name. So you'll see then that the Holy Spirit working repentance in him, that he recognizes that it is wrong for him to hoard all this money. Half of what he owns now goes to the poor, and he will give back and then some to anybody he's defrauded. That 
is the keeping of this commandment. Because up till that point, Zacchaeus was an arch breaker of the seventh commandment. And now as a believer in Christ, he is a forgiven sinner and he bears fruit in keeping with repentance by keeping this commandment in the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus points out the fact that he is that salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus is saved. Saved. And he's a son of Abraham. There it is. Now, let me give you the opposite example, which is the, the terrible one, but also tells us something about Jesus. Worth noting here. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Gospel of John, chapter 12, we're going to read something about Judas Iscariot. But it's also, it tells us something about Christ in the meantime. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. A little bit of a note here. Nard is not native to Judea. Nard is something that is a resin found in India, which means that she had to pick this up from traders who were traveling spice routes from the Orient into Judea, which means it was very expensive. She anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we learn something about the character of Judas. Judas, the one who betrayed Christ, was a habitual breaker of the seventh commandment. And you'll note his pious pretense. He sounds so holy. Why wasn't this nard sold so that we can give it to the poor? <clears throat> I mean me. So you notice the pious pretense. But what does this tell you about Jesus? Consider the implications. Did Jesus have a money bag? Yes, Judas was in charge of it. Jesus had a money bag. Judas was, the, was given the task of, of being in charge of it. And what was the money in it being used for? The poor. Oh, it was more than that. It was more than that. And we learn this when you read the, the Gospels in their entirety, and you can see this in elements of the writings of the church fathers. What we know from this text and from others is that not only did Jesus heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, give sight to the blind, cast out the demons, but that he had a money bag. And that the other thing that Jesus actively did was seek out those in most need of money and he gave it to them. He met their monetary needs and over and again, we Christians are instructed explicitly to work with our hands so that we can take care of our needs as well as the needs of others. That's exactly what Jesus did. So you note, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and his earthly minister in ministry was supported by some very wealthy women, Scripture tells us, and that he used a portion of the monies that was used to support his ministry and his itinerant preaching in order to meet the financial needs of the poorest 
of the people that he would meet. Is there a verse that says that Jesus had a money bag? The one we just read. Yeah. Judas had the money bag. Yeah, John 12, verse 6. That was the money bag for the group. Yeah. He's the treasurer, if you would. Yeah. He's the treasurer of the Disciples Church Council. Yeah, he's, that's what he was. Right, correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Clear case of uh, church fraud going on. And how many stories have we heard in our lifetime of such and such a pastor or such and such a secretary giving off money for themselves from the church? All kinds of scandals along those lines. I want to give you another text along these lines, and it's Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll note that in, cha- in Ephesians, I always have to remind people of this. I understand we are talking about the commandments and what we're saying is law, 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 law. But the reason why we obey is not in order to be saved. The reason why we are obeying these things and we're paying heed to them is because we are already saved. That's the reason. So don't think for a second that you have to do this in order to be saved. You do this because you is saved. That's the idea. So... Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look towards the end of this part of the epistle. And specifically, I want to look at verse 28, but I want you to see the context. Here's what it says. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Now notice, it doesn't say that anger is a sin. This is an important thing. It is very easy to sin in your anger. But anger in and of itself is not a sin. Christ himself got a little hot under the collars a few times, you know, as as the son of God. And yet he did not sin. So in your anger, do not sin and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So were you a bank robber? An identity thief before you became a Christian, all of that goes away, and you are to get an honest job, put in an honest day's work for an honest wage so that you can meet your needs and give to those who financially are in need. Pretty clear. Straight up the case. Now, a little bit of a note here. Theft doesn't always involve breaking and entering. Theft sometimes happens, you kind of think of the They call it white-collar crimes. But there's also blue-collar crimes along these lines. I want you to think of it this way. You get to work. You're an hourly employee. You punch in, and then you pull out your smartphone, and you spend the next hour and a half liking things on Facebook, checking Twitter, responding. What are you going to use it with? Oh, we got stuff going on at work. Oh, I like this. Keep going. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, wow, wow. <laughs> Janet, I can honestly say I'm frightened by your exuberance. <laughs> I've been struggling with this for four or five days to people on Tuesday. All right, so here's the idea. When you were employed, you have an agreement that you entered into, a, a contract. Sometimes it's written, sometimes it's verbal. I will work this many hours for this much an hour, and you, in exchange, will pay me this wage. So when you show up to work and you're not doing what you agreed to do, but you're doing the thing you want to do, and you're getting paid by your employer to do it, you are stealing. The light has gone on. Janet has seen. <laughs> She's ready to dance a jig. What is going on? <laughs> Now, actually, you do. <laughs> you don't have a stand to leg on. Wow. All right. I've, I've never legged before, but okay. That's, that's a new verb for us all. <laughs> yes, we're going to be doing some legging next week here at Kongfinger. Yeah. <laughs> well, the rest of you... Yeah, that's stealing. There's this thing called union. Uh, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a union steward at my time. <laughs> Listen, Hoffa. <laughs> so am I, so am I. But yeah, you know, we've tried to get it through that this is not right. Yeah. This should not be happening. You are stealing. Yeah. And as we made that statement, we got because she didn't take anything. Yeah, I would just take it as the chain of command because I'll be blunt. Even the pagans know that's stealing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, this is theft. This is theft. And then when you go into your employer's office supply room and you decide that, you know, I'm running out of pens at home, so I'm going to fill up on my favorite rollerball pens and the blue ink, you know, with the two-point... Oh, they just... It's just the, the fluid gel thing. Oh, it's so smooth and wonderful. And you don't pay for it. That's stealing. That's... Yeah. But you get the idea. The idea then, as Christians, we note what that... Our job is to protect and help our neighbors keep and grow what belongs to them. Understanding that it is God who has given, that, given it to them. And if you need such things, God has give you, given you a job and a means to get these things. And if it's beyond your reach, well, then you pray and ask God to help you meet those needs. But the idea here is, is that we keep an eye out for these things but always with an eye out for a neighbor. Notice the recurring theme that we're always keeping an eye out for those who are financially in need. Another important thing, and uh, let me see if I can find this really quick. I think it's in Proverbs 19. Very interesting promises regarding the poor. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> do a Bible word search for the word poor. 
poor. And all of a sudden, you'll see quite a few. Listen to this. Proverbs 19, 17. Listen to this. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. The Lord will repay him for his deed. Oftentimes you sit there and you go, okay, this fellow has told me he needs to borrow such and such an amount of money. And he said he'll pay you back. And in your mind, you sit there and you go, there's no way. There's, there's, it ain't, it's just not going to happen. You sit there and go, yeah, I, I, I know I'll never see my money again. Wrong. The fellow who comes to you and says, I'll pay you back. And you know he can't. Don't worry about it. Right. Now, good news. Good news. The prince that has been emailing everybody from Nairobi, they found the fellow and he's now in jail. Just want to say, okay, so you don't need to help those, those people who've been deposed as royalty from Africa. You can, you can, okay. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't poor and he was a white fellow. Anyway, but, uh, but the idea then is this, is that when you meet the needs of somebody who cannot pay you back, God's got it. He's got it. You don't have to worry about it. The Lord will pay you back. And it may not be in this lifetime. Don't worry about it. So we can give without even the expectation of return from the person whom we are lending to. Don't worry in that case. God Himself has given you a promise. You're not lending to that fellow. You're lending to me. And I'll pay you back. This gives us freedom to be generous. It gives us freedom to even to give in a way that it is a true gift with no expectation of return. We can be generous and know that God's going to meet our needs. And then the idea is the reason why, part of the reason why we are working ourselves to the bone week after week under the curse and languishing is not merely to meet our own needs. It's not just to put food on your table. Part of what you are earning is to help somebody else put that food on their table. And this is what Scripture tells us. And teaches us. Now, one of the ways in which people break this commandment, we'll take a look at another text before we wrap up for the day. In Leviticus chapter 19, it discusses another thing, and I'll be making another plug for the government here. I know the government has not paid me to say these things. But in Leviticus chapter 19, there is a common way, especially in the ancient world, and until very recently hasn't been solved for the most part in most countries, is that those people who set up shops in markets and places like this oftentimes will set up unjust weights so that you think you're paying so much per pound, but in reality they've, they've rigged the scales in their favor. And Leviticus com- forbids this, and it's a breaking of this commandment. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the idea then here is is that this rules out as Christians any scheming to get from people something by making them feel that they're buying something at a particular price when in reality they're paying a different price for it. Big plug for the government here. Every time I go to the gas pump and I get out of the car, put the gas pump into, you know, put the thing into my truck. I look and right there, there's a sticker on the gas pump that says that that pump was checked by somebody in the weights and measurements department for the state of North Dakota. When you go to the grocery store, 
when you're being in the checkout line. That little scale that they weigh your fruits and vegetables and other things that you pay by the pound on, that's also checked by the government. And so the idea here is, is that by us paying our taxes, we are helping, again, to keep this commandment by, through a distribution of work, making sure that somebody is tasked with the job to make sure there are not those out there who are taking advantage of consumers by rigging scales and pumps and things like that in their favor and siphoning off funds when somebody thinks they're getting one thing rather than another. So this speaks well, again, of one of the ways in which we keep this commandment is by pitching in part of our money to the government for the purpose of protecting each other and our neighbors. Didn't realize you're going to get a big pep talk about how great the government is, right? But we as Christians, we must see that the government is instituted by God and that it serves a legitimate function. And so when we pay our taxes and we see that the pumps are checked to make sure that no one's being stolen from, these are ways in which we are participating and ensuring the right things are happening and keeping these commandments. You you didn't even realize that when you were paying your taxes that you were keeping the seventh commandment, but you are. Important. All right, that was lesson number one. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll pick up again lesson number two, again on the commandment that says, Thou shalt not steal. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break when we come back. Lesson number two on Thou Shall Not Steal. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. If you're a weather warrior, it's time to lay down your weapons. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents... Church Day Select. Oh, has it been a week already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, signed there. Oh dear, I was expecting something a bit l- larger. Is that all there is? Uh, afraid so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. Oh, I do hope I haven't been ordering chia pets in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, this had better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. Watching this, it means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the bronze edition. Bronze edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. 
I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the Bronze Edition package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. Toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving. Okay. Additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. <laughs> I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my new pad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the Bronze Edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... Wait, what? In the Silver Edition... Your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the gold edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. This can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. Yeah! In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's that darn play button? Oh, oh, wait, there it is! Part 5. Nourishment. In the bronze edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold Edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken cordon bleu, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. Complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the Silver Edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable, radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33. Communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver Nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six Holy Hand Grenades, one Hideaway Moat, and... I can't believe this! 
They didn't say anything about different editions on the website. How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me. What are the shams of these sleaze balls running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church box CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish. Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that as Christians, we are our brother's keepers. Because we are. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. Uh, when you join our crew, by the way, which is a great way to support us, uh, you get to choose your rank in our in our crew based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to support us by becoming a patron, patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do that several ways. One is click the Donate button and fill that out, or you can make your gift pay to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is lesson number two on the commandment that says, Thou shalt not steal. Here we go. We began a study last week on the seventh commandment, which says, You shall not steal. We noted last week that question that Cain asked. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer for us Christians is, yes, you are your brother's keepers. And you're going to note, last week, I gave two big plugs for the government. Two huge plugs for the government, because one of the ways we as Christians fulfill this commandment is with good government, supporting good government. Even Christians saying, I'm going to put my my name forward for government positions. A well-ordered government with leaders who recognize the law of God is a blessing for us. The worst thing, a curse, is like Chicago politics, where the criminals are running the show and the dead are voting. It's the weirdest thing. So, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I, I heard years ago that uh, that they were trying to strip the dead of their right to vote, and there was a whole political action committee created for those who are vertically challenged. <laughs> Can't take away their rights. Any, that's a, just a bad joke. Anyway, <laughs> I should give up that just right now. Yeah, no, that that's bad. So you're going to note again then here as we look at this seventh commandment that there are more aspects of it that also will talk to the need for good government. When it says, you shall not steal, do not think it is merely don't take things from other people. It's far more than that because there are so many different ways in which we take away from people their ability to care for their bodily needs. And so we'll look at kind of it in its totality. As we continue with this, the question before us is when we fear and love God by looking after our neighbor's well-being, by helping and protecting improve our neighbor's you know, uh, different things, what are those things? Well, we need to protect our neighbor's earthly possessions. Consider this text in Exodus twenty-two fourteen: If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. Now, I've never borrowed farm animals from anybody, but that, that still happens to this day. People borrowing horses or beasts of burdens or things like that. I've borrowed power tools before. 
So if I were to borrow Dwayne's skill saw and I decided I was going to be doing a project and I was working the skill saw and smoke came out of it and it caught fire, this text says it's my job to pay for a new skill saw. That's what, and it makes perfect sense. You sit there and go, but you'll note that our sinful nature would say, how long has he had this skill saw? I mean, he's owned this thing for 10 years. How many projects has he used it on? He goes ahead and wears it out. I use it once and it catches fire. And now I'm the guy who's got to pay for this thing. <laughs> That's right. He delivered his horse over for me. I was going to have it plow, help him plow my field. And it was already coughing when it got there. <laughs> but this text says, if you borrow anything and it dies or is injured... You shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, that's a different story. He shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So you get the idea. So the idea, that think about it this way. Not stealing also involves when you borrow stuff from people. Have you ever, I'm one of these guys, I own a lot of books. I don't know if you've noticed, noticed this, but I own a lot of books. There are, there are people who all over this country have some of my books, you know, <laughs> And if you're listening to this podcast, please send them to Kongsvinger Lutheran Church. (laughs) In fact, I've got so many books missing. I don't don't even remember who has them. It's just the weirdest thing. Anyway, we also take care of our neighbor by actually caring about their income and their livelihood. I would consider Philippians 2 in this particular case. Philippians 2 Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think the NIV has it a little stronger there, and I think that's right. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Tell me that's not easy to do, right? You want me to think of everybody as more significant than me? Yes. Well, what about me? Well, their job is to consider you more significant than them. You see, you see how that works? We're, we're all, as Christians, we're diving for the bottom. And by considering other people as more important than ourselves, the idea then is this. I got your back, you got mine. I'm looking out for your needs, you're looking out for mine. When everybody considers others as more important than themselves, everybody's taken care of, nobody falls to the cracks. But when you consider yourself better than everybody else, then, of course, you would never get your hands dirty or touch the unwashed masses and let their ick get on you because, after all, you are amazing. And is this not what our celebrity culture is? Our celebrity culture takes human beings and exalts them to little deities. And they have all the money. They have all the prestige. And all the news is about the things that they are doing. And, of course, nobody cares about you because you're nobody. But they're somebody. Why are they somebody? Because they're good at pretending. Is that not what makes a celebrity? Somebody who's good at pretending to be somebody else. Since when did becoming good at pretending make you better than anybody else? But you don't understand. She is beautiful. He. Oh, this makes my heart flutter. I just love the way he depicted such and such a cowboy. Yeah. They're great at pretending. That's what they do. And we 
thanked them for entertaining us and looking so sparkly and shiny and clean. While the rest of us, well, we're nobodies. But as Christians, that's not our what we do. We consider others as better than ourselves. Everybody is better than us. Verse 4, so let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I need to make a note here, and that is not looking at the interests of others the way a gossip does, like Mrs. Kravitz from, you know, you're spying on your neighbors and being a busybody and reporting to everybody via gossip. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about looking after the interests of others, like actually physically being concerned, mentally, psychologically being concerned, and doing something to make sure your neighbor is okay. End of story. And this is talking about in their income, in their livelihood. That's the idea. And then the ultimate example of this that is held up for us is Christ and the cross. So you note that not only does the glory of God tell us that we're forgiven, the glory of God in the forgiveness of sins in Christ and his humiliation and his incarnation and going to the cross then is held up for us as the pattern that we as Christians follow in this, own, in this life. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We follow Christ. I would argue that considering others as better than yourself is a great way to deny yourself. Well, if I did that, I'd be really busy caring for everybody else's needs. Bingo. Right. That's the point. I'm going to give you an example of this from Genesis. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 13, you're going to note we have a great example of this in Abram. This is before he was renamed by God as Abraham. And if you remember when Abram traveled to the land that God told him to travel to, that he brought his nephew Lot with him. Abram's the uncle, Lot's the nephew, One is the elder, the other is the younger. But watch what Abram does. Abram is very, I mean this, very Christ-like in this account. Genesis 13, verse 2 reads, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Every prosperity heretic knows this verse. And they would argue, See, Abram was rich. God wants you to be rich too. No. (laughs) Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not. Although Abram's rich, that does not mean that God wants you to be rich. You may be poor. You may have to struggle. You may have to work and toil like the rest of us in order to pay your bills. That's all part of the curse. So he journeyed from on from the Negev, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the place between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of Yahweh. And Lot, who went with Abram, was, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for the possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So their possessions are so great, their livestock is so great, that the land itself cannot sustain both herds. Abram's the older. Lot's the younger. 
But watch what Abram does. He exemplifies this characteristic of Christ as considering others as better than yourself. Rather than exerting his right as the elder in the family, here's what he says, verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. We're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Note, Abram gives the choice to Lot. Wherever you want to go, I'll go in a different direction. You get to pick. Not me, you. Wow. Wow. So, Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we learned something about that area. This is in the Dead Sea region, the south part of the Dead Sea, that prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, this was a lush place, very lush. This was a high-rent district. This was some primo real estate here. And so Lot chose the primo real estate. But unfortunately, it's in a bad neighborhood if morals are important to you. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Does that sound like Lot kind of snubbed his uncle? Yeah, it does. But not only did he snub his uncle, he actually is snubbing God too. Because it says that the men of Sodom were wicked and they were great sinners against Yahweh. I'm pretty sure Lot would have known about that already. That didn't matter to him. Let me ask you this question. Have any of you ever had a relative, or maybe you've been that relative, where you have made some really dumb decisions in your life? Some really immoral decisions in your life. And your life or that life of that person that you know went from here into the tank, straight into blah. And their life blows up. Our inclination when they hit that rock bottom is basically to say, you made your bed, lie in it. You see, your chickens have come home to roost. I don't know why chickens do this when it comes to people's lives, but when chickens come home to roost in somebody's life, our general attitude towards them is, you got what's coming to you. You sow some wild oats, and now look what's happened to you. Uh Uh-huh. You feel vindicated and all this kind of stuff. And you're very cautious in offering help to somebody like that. Well, lots of chickens came home to roost in the next chapter. They really did. And things didn't go so hot for him. They didn't. And Abram, rather than basically saying, you made your bed, lie in it, keeps the seventh commandment, even before it's given. Take a look at chapter 14. We're specifically going to be looking at verses 12 through 16, but I like to get the context here. Verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. They joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Amur, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariat, king of Elisar, four kings against five. 
The valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. By the way, those bitumen pits are still there to this day. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Note that the text does not say, and Lot got what was coming to him. That little upstart snot-nosed kid who snubbed his uncle and took the best place for his flocks and made him move out in the middle of nowheresville. Finally, you know, he got, God judged him and thus perished Lot. No, doesn't say that. You're going to note, Abram is extremely Christ-like. Watch what happens. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Wow. War is a pretty iffy thing. Going into battle against a group of kings who had just defeated a bunch of other kings, that's an iffy proposition. But the Lord gave Abram the victory, and with a smaller force and a little bit of cunning and some good strategery, that's right, he had battle plans, that with that, God gave him the victory, and he rescued Lot. Did Lot deserve it? No, not at all. And this is kind of the interesting thing about all of these commandments. You are not commanded to only not steal from people you like. You are explicitly commanded by God to not steal from and care for the income, well-being, and livelihood of even your enemies. Even people who have snubbed you, mistreated you, hate your guts, or even want you dead. I know. You have that look on your face like, no way. It's true. It's true. It's absolutely true. And that's exactly what we see happening here, this idea. And we'll get into some more sp- specific text. So I would like to also kind of point out in this context, let me kind of take it from a small example like this and kind of expand it out a little bit. Another plug for good government. Right now, the Winter Olympics are going on. Yes, I love the Olympics. I really do. So the Winter Olympics are going on, and they're taking place in South Korea. South Korea has been an ally of ours for quite a while. Now, you are aware that the Korean people, they were occupied by Japan long before World War II started. And they were not set free from being under the boot of Japan until we defeated Japan in 1945. And then no sooner were they freed from the Japanese that the threat of the communists came in. And we stood up for these people and sent our boys to bleed and to die to keep them from being put under the regime of the communists. 
Now, we didn't fully win that war. And North Korea right now is languishing under a terrible, terrible dictatorship. While South Korea, a a country of 50 million people, they are our allies. And you think about the fact that if it hadn't been for us and our blood, sweat, tears, ammo, and sons bleeding and dying for them, where would they be today? Same with Europe from Nazi Germany. So the question is, are you your brother's keeper? Yes. And sometimes being your brother's keeper means that your nation comes to the assistance of those who are being threatened and oppressed by horrible dictators, ideologies, or aggressive nations. And so we have helped the South Koreans to in fulfilling this commandment by being allies to them and standing up for them and helping them. And I'm positive, had that regime fallen to the communists, we'd be watching the Winter Olympics being played out somewhere else this, these next couple of weeks. Every time you see these Olympics, and they take you on these little travelogues throughout Pyeongchang and different parts of Korea, understand this, that those people have freedom today because we helped them keep it. And it cost us something for that. And this is a good work. We oftentimes, as Americans, sit there and go, how is it that we've become the police force for the whole world? Well, in part, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have been a very heavily Christian-influenced nation. And part of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is caring about our neighbors, even when our neighbors are another nation-state or a smaller country. We can sit there and say, who are these Koreans anyway? We don't know any of them. Why should we help them? Because they're our brothers. Whether they're brothers in Christ or just human brothers, they are the same flesh and blood that we are. That's why we help. That's why. And this is how you keep this commandment. And I think this from Genesis kind of shows that. Again, Abram, this, it's, it's more than just an Abram thing. It's like a geopolitical thing going on here. Take a look at some more passages. So we're going to take a look at some of the connections then. The question is, what else is considered to be our neighbor's possessions or property today? As we kind of consider what Scripture teaches in this regard. So our neighbor's property, listen to this, may include intellectual property, such as ideas, writings, which can be stolen by copyright violation, patent infringements, plagiarism, and also music, software, movies, personal information, which might be stolen by online piracy, computer hacking, or identity theft. So you sit there and you go, well, you know, remember that, that site, was it called Napster? It was just organized theft of people's intellectual property. I remember the days back when computers worked using floppy disks. Any of you guys remember? And I remember seeing some of my friends having computer applications that I really wanted on my computer. And oh, so badly, I just wanted to borrow their floppy disk just for like an hour. Dealing software, movies, music, intellectual property via pri- piracy is a breaking of the seventh 
commandment. Those things are not made by the people who make them to be consumed or used or enjoyed for free. If you want that application on your computer, buy it. You want to watch that movie, rent it or purchase it. You want to listen to that song, go to places on the internet where you can legally listen to it so they'll be reimbursed via ad revenue or go on iTunes or something else and buy the song. Most songs are a buck something a piece. I'm sure you can afford one. But there are a whole lot of people, and even Christians, who do not have any pangs of guilt when they are openly stealing these things from others. And when you confront them on it, they'll say things like, well, those money-grubbing Hollywood executives, they don't need the money. They're all immoral anyway. They promote homosexuality. Well, yeah, they do. And yes, they are money-grubbers. But you do not have the right to steal their stuff. Period. See, that's deflecting, by the way. Have you, have you noticed how the technique works? I'm going to nail you to the wall because you are sinning. And then they come up with all kinds of deflections. It's their fault. They don't deserve it. I'm in the right. No, you're not. You're stealing. Repent. So consider those implications. So question before us then is, how does God provide us and others with our earthly goods? Listen to the question. How does God provide us and others with our earthly goods? I'm going to ask a question. There's a guy who owns a plantation, a banana plantation, down in South America. Hey, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. There's a guy down there. He's owned, he owns a plantation. I want you to tell me how many people does it take from to make it so that the bananas growing in his plantation end up on your Cheerios in the morning. From there to your, your cereal bowl, how many people does it take? A lot. Bunches. I like what you did there. I, I, yeah, that's, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. It takes bunches. From the guy who plants the bananas, to the guy who harvests the bananas, to the guy who drives the truck, to the dock, to the people who own the boat companies that put them on the boat or the airplane, and then they ship out to here, they get to a place, and then somebody's got to pick them up and distribute them over there, and finally they make it onto the grocery stand. Right? There's a lot of people involved. I don't know where you buy your bananas, Cliff, but mine are okay. <laughs> yeah, we, have you considered Hugo's? I'm just saying. Okay. But you, you get the idea. How many? It takes a ton. And you're going to note, God does not cause bananas to fall out of the sky. That would probably cause property damage. He doesn't cause them to fall out of the sky. They just don't magically appear on the ground like manna. So you're going to know, when you have a banana, there were a lot of people involved in getting that banana to you. And each and every one of them have served you in giving you that banana. And they deserve their day's wages for the work that they've done to make it so that you can put a banana on your Cheerios. So everything along the supply chain is big in this commandment. Now you're going to note, 
All of this begins with God. Psalm 65. Psalm 65, verse 9 in particular. And consider what the psalmist writes. Speaking of God. You visit the earth. You water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. The first person in the supply chain for everything that's on your table is God himself, who made the seeds and the plants, who sends the rain, created the soil, gave us the sun. First person is always God. You see it? And God intends to feed you now with him initiating it. The work then is done by us in fulfilling it. So since he's the beginner, God is always the one that feeds you. Always. This is why we give thanks. We thank you, Lord, for the food that you have given us to sustain us. Since he has begun the the supply chain, Everybody else along the supply chain are people that God has put in place to feed you, even if you don't know their names. Next, Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to get our context. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall keep carefully to do, so that you may live, multiply, go in, and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing, while you were in the wilderness, did not wear out, your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then, in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, Yahweh your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandment of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, water, of fountains, of springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, clearly not North Dakota or Minnesota, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land that he has given you. So again, working off this theme, Scripture is clear that all of these things come from God. He provides the raw materials, if you would, the plants, the sun, the water, And then he continues to feed us through the vocations of other people who serve us by growing these things or harvesting them or digging them out of the earth. That's the idea. Now, another thing, important to note, we've mentioned this already, but the fourth commandment comes into play here, and that is is that God provides through us through family members. Through family members. So, Fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. God has placed each and every one of us into family units. And so there's, there's an aspect to this that we have to consider. And that is, is that we look after each other because we are family. Now, the other thing that God does is he gives us jobs 
and careers. He gives us jobs and careers, and these are the means by which we're able to afford the food to put on our table. So whether it's working in some place like Walmart or working at the university or working as a homemaker, these are all important things that God has given us, and it's all part of the ways in which we help each other and keep this commandment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a good place to look in this regard as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 particularly verses 10 through 12, when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, my grandma used to quote this to me when I would dilly-dally and procrastinate and hem and haw about doing my chores, and she was visiting. And she would do it with a thick German accent. I can't even begin to impersonate it. But me and chores didn't get along. When I was a younger fellow, you know, I had lots more important things to do than clean my room or mow the grass or things like that. And it would always upset my grandmother when she would come to visit that my mom would tell me to do something and I wasn't just Johnny on the spot, get to it. My grandma would tell me, the Bible says, if you do not work, you shall not eat. And I thought she was a loon. And then God gave me children. Now, it's kind of a funny way of approaching this, but I want you to consider this. The expectation is because we are forgiven penitent sinners in Christ, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our good works are done in our vocations and in the labor and the toil that we do in our vocations. That being the case, the text does not say the person who cannot work shall not eat. No, the person who cannot work, they are our responsibility. But the person who can work and won't is somebody who, as a Christian, you sit there and go, really? you decided you're going to spend your day doing what? Reading Facebook and playing video games? And you need me to help you eat? Uh-uh. That's kind of the only exception. The person who is a Christian brother or sister who can work and won't That person is poor because they are lazy and they are selfish. And in that case, they're not a charity case. They're not somebody we're to care for. The way we care for them is say, you go right ahead and you're going to not eat tonight. We'll see how long it takes for hunger to motivate you to get off your keister. Hunger becomes a big motivator in that sense. It's it's not because they're not poor because of circumstances. They're poor because they don't want to do nothing. Now, I want you to consider then the implications regarding the fact that our society has set up a safety net, financial safety net. There are those people who literally are abusing that system who can work and won't. There are people who are living off of the generosity of others who are capable of working and refuse to, and they are cheaters. They are evildoers. And our posture... And our demand for our government to not permit people to abuse the system, people who are capable of working and who won't, that is different than somebody who can't work. That is a different situation altogether. And so you consider the implications politically. This is, this is natural law, moral law, right? And we all have the law of God in our hearts. And you're going to notice, you don't have to be a Christian to say it's wrong for people to cheat the welfare system. 
Everybody knows that that's theft. Because it is. Because the law of God's written on our hearts. You're going to know this, this has huge implications. You didn't realize there was that much in there in the phrase, thou shalt not steal. The implications are ginormous. And again, I keep coming back to the government because the government is a big part of how this is properly worked out. The job of the government is to punish the evildoer. The person who is taking advantage of our Christian generosity, who refuses to work, is somebody that we're not to help. That person should be punished and cut off. And once hunger has set in long enough, they might be motivated to get off the couch, turn off the television, actually go and get a job or show up at work and actually do something. You get the idea. Ephesians 4.28, again, the thief should no longer steal, but rather let him do labor, honest labor, work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, I want to show you this another piece of this then, talking about our families, coming back to that topic. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, talking about Christian charity. And talking about Christian good works. Let me show you the context, and then I, and we'll drill down into the bigger issue. So, First Timothy, do not rebuke an older man. Encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. In all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Worse. Now, let me explain kind of a context here that will make sense. If you look at Mark 7, one of the passages I come to with some regularity, talking about how the Pharisees are heretics. Again, the Pharisees believed that God had not only given the written Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but that on Mount Sinai, God had secretly given to Moses what was referred to as the oral Torah, called the tradition of the elders, and it was not written down. And so they claimed equal authority for both bodies of work, but the tradition of the elders, the oral Torah, was totally man-made doctrine. And Jesus himself literally refuses to obey anything in the oral Torah refuses to recognize it as authoritative. And that's really the spark point of the conflict that we see in Mark 7. And there's an example given in here that is related to what we saw in 1 Timothy 5. So let me read Mark 7, 1. The Pharisees gathered to Christ with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The oral Torah of the Pharisees was the body of work that had the command that if you go out into the marketplace and you are in the presence of Gentiles and unbelievers, that their sinful ick would get on you. And so you were required upon entering your home to perform a little religious rite that they had established. And basically, the way it works is you have a little 
basin and a pitcher. You take your left hand, palm down, pour water on it, spritz the water off, switch hands, right hand, palm down, water on it, change hands, left hand, palm up, water on it, switch again, right hand, palm up, water on it, put the pitcher down and say this prayer, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, we thank you that you have given us the command to wash our hands. Amen. Now, my mom would have loved this ceremony. <laughs> you got to know, it was a ceremonial washing to make it so that the uncleanness of the Gentiles wasn't brought into your house. You will not find this ceremony mentioned or prescribed in the written word of God. It was in the tradition of the elders. So here's what happened. Jesus' disciples come into the house. Every single one of them at the command and teaching of Jesus skips the little wash bowl. They go right into the dining room. And you can see Peter saying, Hey, John, would you pass me a chicken wing? None of them have washed their hands in this sense. And the Pharisees lose their minds. And the reason why they're losing their mind is because Jesus is not recognizing at all the authority of the tradition of the elders. He's not recognizing it at all. And by not recognizing it, he's not recognizing their authority because all of their authority is found in the tradition of the elders. It's not found in the written, Bible, in the written word of God. So here's now the spark point. So they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to, here's my quip with the ESV, tradition of the elders should be capitalized, that's an official title for a body of work, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. In order to, important note here, the word for washing is the Greek word baptizo. You'll note, so they baptize cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. I would argue if you think the baptism, the baptizo means fully immerse, that would be a strange ceremony to fully immerse a dining couch. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not eat according to, this should be capitalized, tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Jesus mixes no words. He doesn't punch, pull any punches. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And you can hear the Literally, all of the oxygen leaving the room. Jesus just threw down. And he continues, You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The Greek is, must die the death. I love it. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, 
that is a gift that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So according to the tradition of the elders, mom and dad are getting up in age. And we all know how poorly mom and dad treated us. They're getting up in age. And the last thing I want to do is have to take care of them who were so awful to me when I was growing up. So the Pharisees come along and say, you know, the tradition of the elders says you don't have to take care of your parents. All that money that you just kind of figure out what it would take. They, they, they look like they're going to live for another five, ten years. Two of them, no problem. That'll come to this amount of money. Go ahead and just give that to God. It's Korban. Give it as a gift to God. And, and when you give it to God, since it's a gift to Him, you won't have anything and you don't need to take care of your parents. They're on their own. Isn't that wonderful? So the guy tallies it up, pays the money to the temple. It's now Korban. I'm going to give this money to God. You see, it's a gift to God. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. You're just going to have to live on the streets. It's evil. It's evil beyond all reason. And this is really what's kind of at the heart, then, of what's going on in 1 Timothy 5, where it says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So your parents are getting up in age and they can't afford to take care of themselves. Guess whose responsibility it is to make sure they're taken care of? Yours. But it's going to... You know how much that's going to cost? It's going to cost you your soul if you don't repent and take care of their needs. You're worse than an unbeliever if you won't care for them. That's... That job falls on you, and that job is explicitly given to you by God. Now get out of that. You see what I'm saying? That's how strong this is. That's how huge the implications are. Obeying this commandment means recognizing your neighbor, your relative, is your responsibility. We consider others better than ourselves. We meet their need because they have a need. It affects the community. It affects your family. It affects global political politics. It's huge. It's absolutely ginormous. All right. We'll pick it up from here next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>